My name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors at Gospel Community Church. I want to talk with you today about the Training Day podcast. That's right, the Training Day podcast. The Training Day podcast exists to continue your learning so that you can be equipped for every good work in every day life. Our hope with the Training Day podcast is to create a resource library for you, your friends, your family, uh, whether you've been a believer for many years, new to the faith, or not a Christian at all. We're hoping that this will be a resource library for you so that you can learn what it looks like to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and land it in everyday life. So we want you to subscribe to our podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us there on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever. You can also find us on our YouTube channel, The Training Day Podcast, or our website, trainingdaypod.com. So please go subscribe and let's grow together in Christ. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. My name is Kurt McDonald. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I have the great privilege to be one of the pastors here at the church, uh, and as my honor this morning to bring to you God's perfect and precious word, may he add his blessing to it. Well, you know, at Gospel Community Church, we have a clear vision statement, which we repeat ad nauseum. Uh, our hope is to, uh, we want to know the Bible, we want to share life, and we want to bring hope to the world. Uh, when we say we want to know the Bible, we want to know the Bible because the Bible teaches us about Jesus, amen? And we love Jesus. We're devoted to Jesus. We give our life to him, and the Bible is all about Jesus from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's all about Jesus. So that's why we want to know the Bible, because we want to more deeply know Christ, his person, and his work. When we say we want to share life, what that means is we want to know each other. We want to be in each other's lives. We want to share each each other's burdens. We want to share each other's joys. We want to be there for one another. We want to act uh, like the New Testament says that we should act like a family, to, to love one another, to serve one another, be with one another, right? That's why we want to share life and we want to bring hope. That is the hope of the gospel, the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We want to take that hope and not only apply the gospel, reapply the gospel to our daily lives over and over again. We want to see that message of hope, that message of gospel hope go out through Fayetteville to Henry County to Clayton County throughout the whole Southeast and throughout the whole world. Amen. That is the vision of Gospel Community Church. We want to know the Bible. We want to share life and we want to bring hope. Now, underneath that vision is what we call a vision initiative. So we will never get off of the course of knowing the Bible, sharing life, and bringing hope. We're always on that course. But as we go on that journey, as we go and head in that direction, there are other things that we will focus on from time to time. And so at the beginning of 2019, we, we opened up with our vision initiative. And here's our vision initiative. We want to be a multicultural, multi-generational church, which puts the gospel on display. Amen. That, that is what we talked about 
So our desire is to be a multicultural and multi-generational church that puts the gospel on display. And so the reason that we, we are saying this, the reason that, that we're doing it is because those two things, being a multicultural and a multi-generational church, listen, they don't just happen. They, they don't just happen. We have to focus on it. We have to chase after it. We have to change. We, we have to discover new way to become those two things because everybody in this room understands and knows that we all tend to lean towards sameness or likeness. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of churches in the South and, and really throughout the whole world are, are, are homogenous, meaning they're same. They, they, the, we attract and we get with people who look like us, talk like us, vote like us, uh, have the same amount of money as us. That's who we're gravitated towards. And so if we're not being intentional about reaching out to those who are not like us, it's never gonna happen. Um, so, so the reason I just said all of that is to explain to you why we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> so um, as you know, when, uh, when all of this went down, and you know what I'm saying when I say all of this, as, I, as I'm staring into a crowd of people wearing masks, when all of this went down, we, we were in the book of Corinthians, and what we did is we shifted gears. We stepped out of the book of Corinthians and got into a study of Philippians, which we concluded uh, last week. And so what we're doing this week is we're picking up where we left off in the book of Corinthians because what we're going to be talking about today is uh, betrothed people, single people, right? So at the time, it seemed a bit odd when, when you know, the world was on fire. Uh, it seemed a bit odd to be discussing that, and so it, it seemed better to us to go ahead and shift to uh, Philippians. Uh, and so we've concluded that study. So we're going to be back in, uh, back in Corinthians. And, and so the reason that we chose Corinthians is because the church at Corinth was a multicultural church. The church in Corinth was a multicultural church. What do I mean? I mean, there were Jewish people in the church. There were Gentiles in the church. If you know anything about the history uh, or the geography of the city of Corinth, this place is a melting pot. I mean, you got people from all over the Roman Empire traveling through, coming through, landing in this port town uh, where there is lots of commerce. There's lots of business, lots of people coming in, going out. This is a melting pot. And so what we see in Corinth is this is a multicultural church. Not only is it a multicultural church, the church in Corinth was a multi-generational church. How do we know that? Well, because he addresses the young unmarried people. He addresses older married couples. So not only is this a multicultural church, it's also a multi-generational church. And the reason that we're looking to this book, uh, if you're taking notes, we are studying 1 Corinthians as a case study of what not to do as a multicultural and multi-generational church. Anybody read Corinthians? Just kind of skim through it. These folks are off the chain, okay? They, they are wild, they're crazy. They're, their lives look just like the culture. They, their lives look like Corinthians. And if, and if you remember from our, our earlier study, we said um, that, that it actually in the ancient world, if you were going to describe someone as being uh, promiscuous, you would describe them as having Corinthianized. That was their reputation uh, throughout the world. So, what we're going to do very quickly, okay, we, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we have to get to our text, and, and there's actually some, <laughs> some complicated things that we have to nuance in our text this morning. But before we do that, let's just do a quick recap of why did Paul write Corinthians? This is a refresher course. This is to get our brain landed back. We just left Philippi, right? We, we got to get over to Corinth and understand why Paul is writing this letter so that we can get to our text. Can we do that this morning? 
Okay, let's do that. So why, <clears throat> why does Paul write 1 Corinthians? Why does Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, first, he's writing to answer their questions. Paul had landed in, in Corinth. He had planted this church, and then he moved on to go plant and start other churches. And in that meantime, what the people in Corinth had done is they had written a letter and sent it to Paul with, with questions about how to live the Christian life, and what do we do about this? And there's these people over here, and they're sacrificing this meat to idols. We, you know, we know that those gods aren't real. Can we eat the meat or no? Or what about this thing with head coverings, right? Uh, you know, there, there's a whole whole section on head coverings. I know you guys are excited to hear about that. Uh, but they, they had questions about spiritual gifts. They had questions uh, about marriage, all kinds of questions. So the initial, uh, what he's getting after is he's answering their questions. Now, that's not really the main reason he, he's writing. The main reason is really the second reason too. He's writing to reform. So, so he's writing to answer their questions, but he's writing to reform. As a matter of fact, he goes through six chapters of not answering their questions at all. (laughs) He's got six chapters of stuff to say to them before he even begins to land in chapter seven to begin uh, to answer their questions. He's writing to reform uh, the, the, the way that the Corinthians were, were acting. They were suing each other, The Christians in the church were suing each other. They were creating a class system within the church. Uh, the, the wealthy people, you know, they got to sit up front. They got, to, they got all, the, all the positions of power in the church. And, and then the people who didn't have as much money, they were looked down upon. These, listen, this is how crazy these folks were. They were so crazy. They would, they would have communion and they would have this big old feast and they're getting hammered drunk at communion. This is, this is how messed up this church is. The, the, the wealthy people in the church, they would have these big feasts. They, they would pour the wine, and I mean, they would just keep pouring that wine, but they would only pour the wine to the other wealthy people while the needy people in the church actually didn't get anything to eat at all. I mean, there, there was some really, really messed up issues, uh, including incest within this church that the Apostle Paul is writing to reform. Thirdly, uh, he is, he's writing to instruct. They had some, some wonky theology in, in, in Corinth. They, they had some bad theology. As a matter of fact, some of them were struggling to believe in a bodily resurrection. And so what, what he does in chapter 15 is he walks through this beautiful doctrine of a bodily resurrection of Christ himself and then our bodily resurrection in a body like Christ's. So, those are the, re- the reasons that uh, he has written, in this, written this letter. And, and again, the people in Corinth, um, they're, they're, many of them are wealthy. This is a, cult- a culturally diverse church. It's, it's, a, uh, it's that type of place to where you've got a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, you've got a lot of business people, wealthy people, widows, uh, you, you've got betrothed folks. So just kind of get that in your mind. And for a more in-depth look at the church at Corinth, go back in our podcast and listen to the first sermon in this series. Okay, I spend, I spend a whole bunch of time talking about the geography. I brought maps and all kinds of stuff. I did do that today, calm down. Calm down, I didn't do that today uh, because we have to get to our text. So more in-depth look at it. Go back and look at, um, uh, go to the podcast and go to the first sermon. So we gotta, we gotta get into it today. Today, we are going to be discussing single folks. Single folks. Now, I have preached, uh, I have preached and written and taught a whole lot on married uh, stuff, married couples, married people, how to be married, how to stay married. And all the single people are tired of me preaching on marriage. So today we will be talking a little bit about that, but here, here's what we're also going to be talking about. 
married people. <laughs> Sorry, single people. We're going to be talking about single people today. But really, in the, in, the, in the whole view of the text, what we see is he talks about single folks. Um, he talks about betrothed people, that is, people who are engaged to be married. And he also talks about married people. So all three groups are in view. And here is the one thing that he wants all three groups, single people, betrothed people, and married people. Here's the one thing he wants all three of those groups to get. And here's the whole point of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you. Here we go. Y'all ready? Let's do it. Don't let your life be dominated by the immediate and the temporal. Don't let your life be dominated by the immediate. We are so prone to be dominated by the immediate. What has to get done right now, it, it's, it, we, we gotta go to work. We gotta get the project at work done on time. We gotta pay the bills. We gotta go to the grocery store. We gotta take out the trash. We gotta clean up the house. We gotta mow the grass. We, we gotta get the kids to wherever they're supposed to be going. And who knows where the kids are supposed to be going when school starts back. Somebody please help us all. And there is a pressure for the immediate instead of realizing that there is something greater and eternal. It's not only the immediate which, which we are tempted to allow to dominate our lives, but it, it's the, the things that are temporal. Um, things, like, things like your career, things like your house, your car, your savings account, your marriage, your family, all of those things will one day cease to exist Yet, many of us are dominated by the things that are immediate and temporal. And the call from the text is that we are not dominated by the immediate and temporal, yet we have our eyes on what is eternal. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to make all things new. Amen? Okay, well, uh, <laughs> here is what we're tempted to believe. If we read this kind of text, and I mean, just... Just glance over at, at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time is growing very short. From now on, let those who have wives act as though they had none. <laughs> well, what does that mean? <laughs> how, are, how are we to, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods. So, so are we just supposed to opt out of society altogether? I mean, because by, by just a wooden reading of the text, just plain if you got a wife, act like you don't got one. Uh, it, it, act like it, if something sad happens in your life, act like it's not sad. Now, if you take the text to mean that, it would seem like we do need to opt out of society. Uh, we, we need to find a cabin in the woods and just sit there, read our Bibles and wait for Jesus to come back. But that's absolutely not what he's getting at at all. If you're taking notes, we must use the immediate. Hello. We must use the immediate and the temporal to help build what is eternal. So we're not looking to opt out of society. We're not looking to, uh, to, to just throw it all away, whatever, you know, to heck with the world. No, no, we, we actually use the things that are immediate and are temporal. Again, like going go to school and mowing the grass and taking out the trash and paying the bills and going to work. All of those things are given to us as tools to help us focus on what is eternal, the kingdom of God. Instead of being obsessed with the tools that God has given us, right? We're supposed to use those tools to help our minds and our hearts focus on the second coming of Christ and allow that to be the lens that we view everything else through. Okay, we got to get to the text uh, and, and kind of start to get through it again, because there are things that we must nuance out of this text. Verse 25, here we go. Chapter seven, verse 25. Y'all ready to get going? Okay. Chapter seven. Verse 27, now concerning 
the betrothed, the betrothed. Uh, if, if you've got a, um, a ESV, you're going to see a little footnote there. Drop down to your footnote. Uh, you're going to see that it's also uh, the Greek word. This word betrothed is also the word uh, for virgins. Uh, some some uh, translations will actually put that word in there. What this is referring to is people um, who are engaged, right? Uh, pe- people who have been promised to be married. And he is answering a question. We don't know exactly what the question was that they were asking, but we can kind of get a sense of it as we look at the unfolding of what he has to say. So he says, now concerning the betrothed or those people who were engaged. Again, land yourself in this culture to where uh, you're dealing with a lot of arranged marriages. That was the cultural norm. I've been talking to my daughters about that, trying to convince them. We'll see how that goes. Now concerning the betrothed, Here's what he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Um, Now, you can take that to mean um, Jesus didn't have anything to say, and so I'm just going to kind of let you know my opinion. Well, no, that's that's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he's saying at all. Here's what he means when he says, I have no command from the Lord. What he means is that during Jesus's public ministry, Jesus didn't speak directly into this issue. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of issues that Jesus didn't speak into because Jesus knew uh, that he was going to send uh, his Holy Spirit to inspire men to write things down like this epistle to give us those answers later. And he also knew that by his death, burial, resurrection, we would be able to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit, which would help us uh, practically work out the things, uh, spiritually speaking, in our lives through through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So, So Jesus didn't say anything directly about this, but listen to what he says. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy, not by his own strength or power or effort, but by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So this is the Apostle Paul speaking to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving us God's word. Amen? Okay. So he says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress... It is good for a person to remain as he is. You guys are good Bible students. What question do we ask of this text? What is the, what's the present distress? What's he talking about? Because his conclusion from looking at the present distress is that people should remain as they are because of the present distress. So what is the present distress? Well, I'm going to suggest to you uh, that it, it, it is what was going on in the culture at the time. Okay, so he doesn't explain it out because by virtue of him saying, because of the present distress, everybody in the room went, oh yeah. Everybody in the room knew exactly what he was talking about. He didn't have to, to, to spell it out for him because they knew it exactly. Just like earlier on when I said, when all of this happened, everybody's like, uh, uh-huh, we know what you're talking about, Pastor Crow. You know, in the same way, he says in this present distress. So here's what history tells us of what was going on during this time. There was a great famine. There was food shortage in the land. And on top of that, Nero was just about to begin his, his, his campaign and crusade against Christians to where Nero would take Christians, uh, the Roman emperor Nero, and he would sew them into animal skins and throw them to the lions. 
They, they, would, they would hunt Christians and Nero would wrap Christians in pitch and resin, impale them and light them on fire during his garden parties. Let's just say it was very, very difficult to be a Christian. They were being hunted. They were losing their jobs on top of a great famine. Listen, on top of just the regular way of Christian living, again, that life of submission and sacrifice and being weird, right? We're called to be weird. Did you know that? We're called to be different. We're called to be holy. We're called to be otherly. And again, that brings on just present distress. So on top of famine, on top of persecution, on top of regular Christian living, just living out the Christian life. So because of that, he says, it's better that, they, that you remain as you are. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, he explains that in verse 27. Let's move on to verse 27. He says this, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. So, so if you are, here's his, his word to the betrothed. If you're betrothed, like you're engaged, here, here's what would happen. They would go into the, the dads, right? The, the dads would get together. They would go into the public square and they would make this public declaration. Dowry would be exchanged. There's all these promises made and then they're engaged, they're betrothed. And he's saying, look, if, if you've made a public declaration that you're gonna get married, get married. Um, so so um, are you bound to a wife? Are you already married? Well, don't, don't seek to get a divorce. Don't, don't say, well, because there's a great famine, because we're being persecuted, because living the Christian life is hard, it's better if I just do it on my own. I'm just gonna go ahead and get divorced. No, no, that, don't do that. He, he, he's saying, don't do that. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He is opening up the door um, for a beautiful way of living, which is single, right? That sounds strange in our culture, right? We, we, we live in a world, uh, especially here, to where the family is God. And what he's opening up the door to is a beautiful life for a single person just to love and serve the Lord. If you're taking notes, the Bible teaches that remaining single is a good and gracious gift from the Lord, and we would do well to foster this truth in our own local churches. I have a fear uh, that, that in gospel community church and, and maybe other churches, we're doing a poor job of fostering the beauty of singleness. I, I, I feel like maybe we're putting too much pressure on our single people. I, well, when are you going to get married? You know, have you found somebody yet? You know what? There, there, there's this, this underlying cultural pressure on single people to find someone. And once they've found someone, they need to have kids. And, and there's this cultural pressure to do that. And, and, and I think that that's especially going on here at Gospel Community Church. And we need to be mindful of that. We need to stop treating single people like there's something wrong with them. We need to stop trying to push single people into a relationship that might not be good for them when God has a beautiful plan for their singleness. Let's be careful, married folk. Let's be careful because the apostle Paul here is opening up the door uh, for this beautiful way of living, which is single. Verse 28, but, okay, so again, we're not exactly sure what the question was, um, but he's, he's nuancing this out for us. Verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So, so maybe there were some people in the church that were saying, you're actually more holy if you stay single. And you're, you're actually able to devote everything to God uh, if you just stay single. And, and maybe God might even frown upon those people who were so weak that they have to get married. 
Well, well, he wants to, Paul wants to step over here and say, wait, 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 wait. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So here, Paul is avoiding two extremes that we find in our culture, okay? The first extreme is this. Marriage and family are God. Marriage and family are an idol. He avoids that extreme. How does he avoid that extreme? He avoids that extreme by opening up the door for a beautiful life of singleness. So, so we, don't, we don't have to feel the pressure of, you gotta get, you know, that you, you start to hit that certain age and people start to, if you're single, people start to look at you like you're broken. People start to look at you like you're weird. People start to look at you like there's something wrong. There must be something wrong with this person. They haven't found a spouse yet because we're tempted to believe that the family is God and we take our wives and we take our husbands and we take our children and we take God out of his rightful place and we put our wife, our spouse, and our kids right in in this place of God. And so he's avoiding the extreme of worshiping the family as an idol. Now he's also avoiding the other extreme. What's the other extreme? The other extreme is worshiping your freedom as a single as God. Oh, I don't, need, I don't need no man to tell me what to do. You know, I got, I got my own stuff going on. I got my own house. I got my own car. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to be free from all that kind of business. I don't, I don't, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to tell me where to go. So he's avoiding both extremes. So he, no, no, don't worship your family as God. Your, your wife and your spouse and your kids should never be made into an idol. Neither should your singleness or freedom be made into an idol. He, he avoids... Both of these things. Paul knows that marriage is the norm. He, he's, he, he, he didn't miss that part. Paul knows that marriage is the norm and that the vast majority of believers will get married, yet he still wants them to know that being single or even remaining single is a blessing from God. Okay? So, as a matter of practical advice, during this time of distress... He's going to encourage them to remain single. That's his advice. Because of the present distress, it's actually better if you stay single. And, he, and here's, here's what he says. Look, at, look back at verse 28. And, and please, uh, married folk, don't amen too loud on this, okay? <clears throat> he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Listen, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Calm down. Calm down, don't say amen real loud. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. What worldly troubles is he talking about? Now, just for a second, you guys go ahead and put yourself in my position. I gotta preach this while my wife's in the room, okay? So y'all pray for me. What, what does he mean? What does he mean when he says, yet if you do get married, it's not a sin if you get married, but if you do get married, there's gonna be worldly trouble, and I would spare you that. Again, this is his practical advice to, to, to single people. What, what, well, it's the obligation, isn't it? I, I stood on stage in front of a crowd of people and, and a minister, and I made a vow and a promise that I was going to continually, daily, repeatedly sacrifice myself for someone else, that I was gonna lay my entire life down for her good and for her spiritual growth and for her benefit, And so what happens is I'm now obligated to that. Practically speaking, here's what that means. If someone from the church calls me with a crisis, 
I don't just consider what that person needs, but I also consider what my wife needs and what that's going to take from me because I'm obligated to her first. It's, it's the obligation portion of it that I'm obligated to her. And, and if you're married, you get obligated to someone else. Now, what he's not saying is that single people don't have worldly trouble. He's saying single people have less worldly trouble. And, that, and that's just a fact. We all know that to be true. I think the additional worldly trouble is not just that you're obligated to someone else and so you're less free to serve other people, love other people, give to other people. But the other worldly trouble is that you're putting two sinners together in one home. <laughs> That's worldly trouble, folks. Look, I'm, <laughs> ask, ask, just, just ask her, okay? Look, we, we are, <clears throat> we're sinful people, we're prideful people, we're short-tempered type people. And when you put two sinners in one home, it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. It's, it's more difficult when you, and, and then, then just tack on, you know, some other little tiny sinners that are running around in the mix. And, and it, you really are stacking on worldly troubles. Again, just imagine, imagine this scenario where they're at. Christians are being hunted and killed. They're losing their jobs. So imagine that there, imagine how much more worldly trouble, how much more sorrow there would be if, if there's a, a married man who gets hauled off to the Colosseum and killed by a gladiator. What's gonna to happen to his wife? What's gonna to happen to his kids? Again, if, if a single man loses his job because of his faith, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have worldly trouble. He's still gotta pay his bills, but he has less worldly trouble because he doesn't also have to support a wife and children. That's what, that's what the apostle Paul is getting after. If you're taking notes, this is a word to the single people in the room, a word to single folks if you're taking notes. A spouse is not your savior, Jesus is. Okay, single people, listen to me. If you are struggling with loneliness and you feel like that getting married is going to cure your loneliness, you're dead wrong. You're just going to take your discontent and lonely heart into a marriage. If you are struggling with... Uh, uh, sexual temptation, uh, and, and you're, that's the road you're going down, and you think that by getting married, it's going to alleviate that, I'm so sorry, that's not the way it works. You're just gonna carry that same proclivity into your marriage. If you're struggling with anxiety, depression, if those things are your daily uh, struggle and fight, listen, getting married is not going to solve that problem. Your spouse is not your savior, Jesus is. And so single folk, what you need to do is begin to work on those issues now. Find that rhythm that Paul talked about in Philippians, that rhythm and lifestyle of being content with where God has you. I have learned in whatever circumstance to be content. Let that be the song of your heart. And if God brings you someone, God will bring you someone. Okay, <clears throat> we got to move on in, in the text. So uh, you, here's what I want you to know. Singleness, if you're taking notes, singleness offers a way of living with less worldly trouble. Not no worldly trouble, but less worldly trouble. I think about, I think about a guy like John Stott. Anybody know who John Stott is? One per, okay. You guys need to go study the life of John Stott. Uh, I've been 
heavily influenced by his preaching. Um, Almost every study that we've gone through together as a church, I've read his commentaries. I've listened to hours and hours and hours of John Stott preaching. I've read countless commentaries from John Stott. His his influence, his spiritual influence on my life has, has just been massive. And he remains single his entire life. And what that did is it allowed him to preach and preach and preach and write and write and write because of his singleness. There is a beautiful way of life um, that that is walking alone with the Lord. I think about our dear brother who goes to our church, our dear brother Hugh Waddy, who has devoted his life to the Lord and time and time again has just been able to say yes to the Lord. He can just say yes without any other obligations and less worldly trouble. Verse verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Uh, Okay, Uh, Paul, help us please. What appointed time are you talking about? So he's, he's clarifying what he's been saying. This is what I mean. Okay, he's trying to help, help clarify it. Here's what I mean, brothers. The appointed time, what time? Well, the imminent return of Christ. That's what time he's referring to. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. If you're taking notes, because of the imminent return of Christ, don't let your life be dominated by the immediate and the temporal. He's telling them that there's a beautiful way of living as a single person, honoring God with less worldly troubles. Yet if you get married, you haven't sinned and there's a beautiful way to honor God through your marriage. Yet, this is what I mean, brothers, because the time is growing short, because Jesus could return at any time, don't be dominated if you're single, don't be dominated by trying to find a spouse. Why? because it's not gonna matter when Jesus returns. Don't be dominated by it. If you're married, don't be dominated by by your family life. Don't be dominated by all the immediate and temporal things that come along with having a spouse and having children. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. That's why you shouldn't be dominated. Again, if (laughs) just look at what he says next. From now on, let those who have wives Live as though they had none. Okay, what in the world does it mean there? Okay, just to give a little bit of content, just go back up in this very, before you think he means this literally. Before, before you go on thinking that, hold on, go back up in this same chapter and look at verses four and five. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by, okay, so on and so forth. He just, what he's saying there in the same chapter is that husbands and wives should be mutually submissive to one another, loving one another, serving one another. And in the same chapter says, uh, and if you have a wife, act like you don't got one. So obviously he's not meaning this uh, to, to mean, Ignore your wife. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying ignore your wife. Let's wade into the fullness of what he's saying. So if he does not mean ignore your spouse, what does he mean? It means don't be engrossed, preoccupied, or dominated by the fact that you have a spouse and a family. Listen to me. Family is not the most important thing. Let me say that again to us people living in this Southern culture that says, Family is the most important thing. 
Family is not the most important thing. It's not. Again, we, we, uh, maybe you're like me. You know, you're, you're sitting there watching your children play, you know, holding the hand of your spouse and our hearts are tempted to say, man, this is it. This is my whole life. You know, I see my little girls playing, running around. I go, man, there goes my whole life right there. And I understand that's a saying, that's something that we say. It's a problem when we begin to believe it. So we must, we must be careful. Family is not the most important thing. Listen to these very controversial words from Jesus himself, from Luke 14, 26. 26. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, apparently Jesus was not from the South because we are trained and taught and it's bred into us that family is God. Family is the most important thing. But what Jesus just said is, I want your whole life. I don't want just a little part of you. I want to sit on the throne of your heart, which means we have to dethrone family and put God in his rightful place. If you're taking notes, this will sting a little, but just Come on with me. The number one reason people flake out on ministry obligations or don't sign up for them at all is because of their family. We are in danger of turning our family into an idol. This is my experience. This has been my experience for years and years and years. The reason that people flake out on ministry obligations or don't sign up for ministry obligations whatsoever, the excuse that's given has something to do with their family. We need to be careful we need to be careful. I'm saying we need to bring our families along with us to fulfill our ultimate purpose, which is to build the kingdom of God. I'm not, I'm not calling for anyone to neglect their families, but I am calling us to bring our families along with us as we build the kingdom, making sure that Jesus is on the throne and not our family. Verse 30, we got to move. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing and those who buy as though they had no goods. Do, do you see he's not calling us to, uh, to become emotionless stoics? Like if you're mourning, pretend like it doesn't hurt. If you're happy, pretend like you're not. Just, just become emotionless stoic. Of course, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying ignore your wife and, and he's not saying become an emotionless stoic. That, that's not what he's saying at all. He's, he's calling us to not be dominated by the things that are immediate and the things that are temporal. Verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. Here's the big, the big reason why. For the present form of this world is passing away. Your career will not matter when Jesus returns. Your company won't exist anymore. So, So why are we giving so much of who we are and all that we have to building a career? Your house is going to be burnt up. It's going to be bulldozed to the ground. That fancy car that you're paying way too much for, it's going to be in the scrapyard. So why are we dominated by our homes and our families and our wives and our yards and and our career? We're so dominated by all these things. When all of those things are gonna pass away, the trumpet is going to sound, the sky will be rolled back as a scroll, the Lord is going to descend and he's gonna make all things new. And so let us turn our eyes and our hearts Again, this is, this is not a call to neglect our families or, or move away into a cabin in the woods and neglect the world. Absolutely not. It's a call to put things in their rightful place. This is what the Lord would have for us. So I close with this. What is dominating your heart right now? 
What, what dominates your life? What is the overriding principle? Is it, I gotta take care of my wife, gotta take care of my family, gotta build my career? Or are your eyes set on the son of man coming on the clouds? Let's pray. Oh Lord, that our eyes would be set on the son of man coming on the clouds, that we would take these words to heart, that those who mourn would live like they don't mourn, those who rejoice would live like we don't rejoice. We're, we're living in such a way to where we are not dominated by the things of this world because the things of this world are passing away and you are going to come and usher in a new eternal and forever kingdom. May our eyes, may our hearts, may our lives be turned and focused on that. Come soon, Lord Jesus come soon. We ask these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.